Hello, and welcome to the Cardinal Cafe. My name is Greg Chastain, and I'm the president of Voices of Hope, along with my sidekick, Ed Siegel, the vice president of Voices of Hope. Hey, Ed, how you doing? I'm doing great, Greg. How are you? Doing good. Yeah, the weather's getting better. Leon's getting larger. That's a movie <laughs> reference. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, no, things are good. We're back to rehearsal. Yeah. You and I later on tonight are going to be dancing. I know. What we call choreography it, of it. It's called movement. Movement. For our Thank category. you. It is movement. Thank you. <laughs> We have an amazing guest tonight, a wonderful friend of Voices of Hope, Mr. Bob Halloran from WCVB News Center 5, Sports Extraordinaire. Hey, Bob, how you doing? Feeling really good. Thanks for having me. Hey, Bob. Thanks for coming on. We're getting ready to talk about our golf tournament a little bit, but uh, there's some other things that we want to catch up with. How, how are you doing these days? Very well, and I'm um, very happy that when I walk into restaurants and out onto the golf course, I'm seeing entire faces instead of just the uh, pitch the nose up. It feels like victory, and I know that everybody is still a little hesitant to celebrate it, but for those of us, myself, that have been vaccinated, I'm trusting the science and saying, here we go. The burden has been lifted. I feel very happy. It's, it's amazing. Um, we're watching the Red Sox, and the, we were watching the Bruins and Celtics, but just to see fans in the stands gives you a warm feeling because we're fully vaccinated too. And even last night, um, this will date when we record this, but last night I watched the first Stephen Colbert right, um, right. With a live yep. studio audience, and I was like, "Is this a rerun? Is it? Is he really back?" It was. It's great. Yeah. It's just wonderful. It's and so they good. didn't ease into it, you know, with a sparse crowd. That place was packed. They were like, "Okay, here we go." Whereas yep. I watched Bill Maher, and he still has a very small audience, and he tapes in California. I don't know if that's different, but uh, than New York and how the rules are. Yeah, I mean, there was a whole lot of hugging and people together and things like that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're taping this the day after um, state of emergencies lifted. So mm-hmm. it's a great time to be in Massachusetts. We were able to start singing again, uh, doing all the stuff that we're doing. And it, it was a heck of a year, but we're all coming out on the good side, I think. For the things mo- are for the getting most back to normal. Ed and I talk a lot of sports on this and the normal for us has been like, Oh, the Celtics lost. Oh, the Bruins Bruins lost. (laughs) (laughs) I was enjoying both their seasons. I like both their teams, players on them, and the coaches. Uh, They were an easy group, both of them, to root for, I thought. I kind of expected the Bruins to go a little bit further. I I think the Celtics are really good, but so are like four other teams just outstandingly good. I mean, it's it's a stacked league uh, right now uh, with super teams, and so – it is what it is in that regard, but I like them to advance a little bit further so I have more to report and to cover and <laughs> content to gather, and uh, yeah. now it's like Red Sox and you know, when Patriots start up again. Right. Yeah, it must have been tough covering them because you prob- nobody could go in the stadium, but I did see you reporting and some of the other people reporting from there at times uh, in mass, but I know for us having Zoom meetings, trying to put a show together or anything – but you trying to interview the athletes and the coaches and those yeah. things must just I'm going to be- surprise you with my answer, though, because what I learned during this pandemic is that the teams like us and they want us to report about them. So they made it very easy for us to get content. For instance, Channel 5 doesn't travel with the Red Sox or the Bruins or things like that. So we almost never have post game. But because of Zoom, we had lots of post game throughout right. the entire pandemic. And if we didn't record it, live as it was happening, the teams would record it and send us the link to them. So we always 
had plenty of content. Wow. Um, so we had pregame for Red Sox and Celtics, and we had postgame, and we got one-on-ones uh, for our Sports Center 5OT show. We actually, you're right, I couldn't um, go on the field uh, for Patriots training camp, and I couldn't even go to Warrior or the Garden to see the players in person. So all my reporting was done via Zoom and then a stand-up outside the garden, something like that. <laughs> and those stand-ups are always fun when people are walking behind you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> people are getting um, used to us all the time, though, because it really – fans out in the uh, public, you, you can't always trust them to behave themselves. But for the past couple, three years or longer even, I haven't had any incidents. There's been no issues, and uh, it's been much better. There were a couple of times, like when I worked at Fox 25 many years ago, I was on um, outside Fenway Park and fans were like throwing paper cups up. I was on top of our satellite truck and they were throwing paper cups at me and shaking the truck a little bit. And I went back to the station. And I said, I'm never doing a live shot there again. And then we started doing them on uh, Van Ness. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Instead, where there were four fans at that time. Apologize for the dog. That's Rocky. Hey, Rocky. Hey, Rocky. Rocky. <laughs> yeah, the life of uh, the life of podcasting from everybody's home. Right. It is what it is. My dog was barking earlier, so it's funny to see how reporting has changed now too. And I see one like the the news stations, CNN, and all of those stations now are back at their desks where yeah. they have all the talking heads and everything. And it's just it was fun to kind of watch the newscasters and the talking heads on those have to do it from their home and they're their own engineer and right. you hear the dogs right. barking or you hear the door closing or you see the son walking in right. looking at his iPad and realizing he's on TV and has to scoot out. Yeah. It brought everybody t- together. Like right. we're all, we're all in this together and we're all trying to just do what we can do and help each other out. So just I definitely give you guys all the credit for being out there in the world, yeah. trying to uh, at least keep us entertained in any way you can I'm informed and i think the channel five did an excellent job i really do credit to our general manager and news director and everybody else who was involved if i remember correctly and i hope i'm not telling tales out of school we had one of the first cases from that um conference in the seaport yep it was a biogen that bio and that's what it was and so one of our camera people got it and after that we didn't have too many cases uh there was Everybody was working from home. The newsroom that would normally have like 30 people in it and four person pods and things like that had like five or six people in it. Yeah, as reporters in, in particular, not so much me in sports because the, the Zoom calls and things, but the reporters had to go and cover protests. They had to go out to press conferences. They had to keep getting out there in the world and they had to protect themselves. I and mean, they did a good job. I've been in your newsroom and it's I watched a newscast one night. What I found very interesting is it's just Maria, Ed, Harvey, and these robots that roam around. There's no real people in there. I was, I was like, wait a minute, this is this is kind of strange. So it, they were already kind of set up to be kind of exclusive from each other and, and apart. And Harvey just came back, actually, didn't he? Yes, yeah. um, I couldn't say if it was a week or two weeks or something like that, but he is back in the building. And uh, the setup that they had at his home uh, with chroma key behind him and all. Yeah. I mean, they did an excellent job with that too. That, that was, was crazy. And you mentioned yeah, but the, uh, the robots. Um, when I was at ESPN, there was nobody else in the room except myself and the co-anchor. And in this case, it was Matt Weiner, who's now at NBA Network. With the greatness of technology, 
but the cameras just started coming after us. So they were rolling at us to the point where we're still talking and there's video that the audience at home can't see this, but the cameras were out of control. Nobody could stop them. And so they just <laughs> kept coming until they banged into our anchor desk and started pushing it towards us. And then we both got out of our chairs and walked around and it didn't stop until it shoved the desk um, into the back wall. Oh, <laughs> I think I need uh, a little calibration on those proximity sensors. Yeah, huh? so these robots can sort of just have a mind of their own sometimes. Uh, oh, they, they didn't like your story. <laughs> <laughs> they were Knicks fans or something. So they did that. The, the other people who don't like the stories, they send emails. Oh, no, that never happens. Oh, Come lots on. of emails. Oh, gosh. <laughs> don't for- even get me started on the sports fans that call into uh, some of these radio shows around here. But Well, the thing that I laughed at when I was at ESPN, I was writing for ESPN.com. So I just sent it to the editor and it makes it onto the Internet. And then um, I would be sent, um, I don't know, 30 emails, all very positive. And I sent a, a note to the editor and I said, you know, I know I don't get all positives. Are you like filtering these? And he said, yes, um, you don't want to see the negatives. I said, well, let me see some of the negative ones. <laughs> and so um, they were really mean, you know, <laughs> like calling me names and all the rest of that stuff. And I would write them back and I'd say, I just want to thank you for reading and uh, I want to clarify my point and uh, blah, blah, blah. And they would write back again and they'd say, oh, I've got so much more respect for you now because you wrote and I didn't expect to ever hear from you. And that's so nice of you. Said, OK, great. Then I come to Boston and I start writing for the Metro um, and I get a lot of negative emails and I write them back and they're like, you know, you're still a jerk. And they, I, just, I couldn't go to the Boston emailers the way I could a national audience. Uh, this is pre-Twitter too. I, I bet yeah. you get some great uh, comments on Twitter. Now. Yeah, it's been fun as in this business to see the growth of technology where first you would get a letter and then you would get a voicemail mm-hmm. and now you get an email or somebody contacts you directly on Twitter. Like right. right after I do the one minute drill in our seven o'clock show and I say, oh, I think the Red Sox are going to do this or the Patriots should do that. I walk back to my desk and I've got like seven Twitter notifications that <laughs> either agree or don't, but they, but they watched and they went right to their computer. I mean, when I watch television, I do not have a computer on my lap or anything like that. I am not going to do two things at once, mm-hmm. so to speak, but I think a lot of people do. Yeah. We live in an instant gratification society. Absolutely. So. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I think it should be the two-minute drill because that's what it is in football. It's a two-minute drill. You're just not going to give us two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that one minute of advertising is, is very, very valuable. I did something like that when I was in college for the radio station. I called it 122nd Street. And it was essentially a two-minute <laughs> drill where I would sit, talk for two minutes about whatever was on my mind or something like that. So that was uh, my first foray into that stuff. They're great. I love. I love. I, every once in a while, I do tweet you when I think they're funny. Yeah. yeah. So you're <laughs> one of the people I get. I get a notification from. Right. Yeah. But I'm nice. I'm always nice about you're it. Very, I think he's very funny. nice. You actually used one of my puns one night. You liked my pun. So <laughs> I don't remember what it was. <laughs> I you're like. Can I take that? Like, yes, you can. I will take from anyone. But speaking of your background, I didn't realize what a prolific author you are. I know, I know you had the, uh, you know, Count the Rings book a couple of years ago, which is, by the way, you've been in Boston so long that you wrote a book it's like, hmm, Count the Rings, everybody, you know. Right. <laughs> and then it was obsolete within like a year and a half because I only counted to 10 and then they won their 11th and 12th. And so those last two aren't in the book, but the first 10 are in there and it's a, it's a good read. <laughs> it is. It's a great read. Um, I'm going to have to bring mine to the when you come and play in our tournament, we'll talk about later to sign my book. Sure. So I've got one. <laughs> um, I can, I can but, say nice things about that idea because it wasn't mine. 
So it's not like uh, <laughs> I'm bragging to say that, but the publisher contacted me and said, do you want to be the one to write this kind of, and, and the, the, the tone of the book was supposed to be overconfident and gleeful with all this stuff. And so it was, it was written almost like a fan, which I don't like to consider myself a fan, but that's how that book was written. So fans of the teams would definitely kind of enjoy tone and tenor of it. Yeah. I, I sent a copy to my family back in Indianapolis who were Colts fans. So just, just so you know, they got, <laughs> so they they got one like for it. Christmas. <laughs> but I, I, I saw all the other books you've written in about Whitey Bulger and uh, some of the other, I don't know if they're crime novels or if they're more biographical sort of novels. Some of the things that have gone in, on in history around here. And in a couple of them, you wrote in your liner notes that they're thinking of doing series or a movie or something is are yeah. any of those still in the works or and i want everybody to know that like when i talk like this and then nothing happens i'm not like making it up but nothing ever happens um <laughs> the closest i did write i wrote um irish thunder about mickey ward right and yeah. so they did come to me it's not a based on the book buy but i was paid as a technical consultant so they they could use some information i had in the book in the writing of the script so that did happen but then i had another book called breakdown about uh, high school football in chelsea and mm-hmm. there was interest in that from a couple of different uh, film producers and i had conference calls with my manager and this producer or that producer and then it just died a slow painful death the same thing with a book I wrote called White Devil. It's about a man named John Willis who grew up in Dorchester. He's a white guy who kind of became a leader of the Chinese gangs in Boston. Um, and that's the hook that catches people. Paramount bought that story, paid life rights to him. I get nothing at this stage. And then they lost the rights because they didn't get it into production in a timely enough manner. I think they had two years. So then I think it was Warner Brothers picked it up. And they were going to do a movie. And I talked to the guy that they hired to write the movie. And then that fell apart. And so now, as I talk to you, I'm waiting for within the next month or so to find out if it's going to be a television series, maybe for Netflix or something (laughs) like that. But another film company has purchased the rights. And then, so I'm telling you, when nothing happens, all of this was true. <laughs> it's true. We'll see what happens. Mickey Ward was one of my 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 most favorite local, you know, sports icons. Oh, you he's know. a good one to have. He's yeah. such a good person, and it's amazing because he was surrounded by not such good people, right? And he just kept his head on straight, and he worked. And well, going too far on a tangent, one of the things that's most remarkable about his story is that he hurt, injured his hands and he retired. And I think he was out for at least three and a half, maybe more than four years. And this is a guy who had championship fights um, and fought on undercards of, you know, Sugar Ray Leonard right. in Las Vegas. And he was like a big deal who had to retire. And he returned to boxing for $250 in some ballroom at a hotel and another $350 at a dog track or something. And so he humbled himself to just do the work. And then Mm -hmm. that created some opportunities for him where he ended up fighting, I think at the garden, a guy named Louis Veter, and he made 30 grand for that. So at least he got some money. Then there was a rematch. Then there was the, and then he started making some good money uh, towards the end. But there was no promise of that. 
there was no guarantee and he just worked his butt off and- yeah well that that's what he's just a blue collar guy i think yeah. i remember watching one fight uh, where he just dropped a guy with a right hook to the ribs. Yeah. The guy went down like a, like a stone. He's one of the few fighters that I've ever seen who uh, more than once uh, knock somebody out with a body punch. Mm. Um, normally you got to uh, hit them in the head a lot. But, yeah. <laughs> but he just uh, knocked him down with a uh, big pain and they would be okay 10 seconds later. But that's too late. <laughs> right. That, you're, you're done. <laughs> right. I think I'd be done if you hit me once anywhere. Right. That guy. Yeah. He was one of those fighters that you love to just to watch. Yep. yep. He and, was, uh, he, and then, so that's, that's a little running gag in my household because when I was researching that book, I found oh, – I'm going to forget his record. It, his record is not amazingly good. It's like 31 and 13 or something like that. And I was able to get on DVD – maybe 28 of his fights that were on USA Network and HBO and different things. So I would watch the fights so that I could write about them. And my daughter, who at the time was probably, if I went back to the math, she might have been five or six years old, would sit next to me. And my wife would call and say, "Uh, how's everything going, Grace? And Grace would say, it's good. And what are you doing? Watching the men hit each other. <laughs> so I don't know how good parenting that was. <laughs> she saw a lot of fights at an early age. Yeah, that, that daddy's daddy's making a living, honey. That's right. <laughs> working hard. Um, those were the days. I tell you, I was working um, freelance at Channel Five, and I was coaching my kids' uh, baseball and soccer teams, and I was doing sports talk radio and writing books on the side just for fun. I'm very tired still. <laughs> was sports talk radio different than it is now? Because now it just seems to be angry all the time. But it's, it, it there was, was a point in time where I, I like to listen to it just to hear what's going on and the things now. And now it's I get five minutes. And I'm like, I, I don't I don't want to hear all the, what's going, you know, the, the callers that come in. Everything is negative. I don't know if it's just Boston. I grew up in the Midwest, so maybe yeah. we were too nice. But well, I would um, say that um, it was pretty much the same back then. Um, there was a lot of the bullying from WEI in particular, I would say. I don't care. I can say it. Um, and, uh, <laughs> um, and when I got um, a gig at uh, ESPN Radio and the um, Shraft Building in Somerville, Yep. I worked with Mike Salk, who ended up oh, yeah. at EEI and then he back out into Seattle. And our show was only two hours long. We had an opening segment kind of like this where we're just talking about whatever's going on. And that was light and easy. Then we'd have like two segments that were a little bit more about the issues of the day. And we were, you know, gracious to each other and whatnot, yelling or anything like that. And the callers were fine. And then we would have a guest on from ESPN to talk about national things or a big game coming up. And then we finished the show with like a silly segment uh, talking about whether or not you put the toilet paper on uh, the thing with the paper on the top side or the bottom side. (laughs) And we'd debate that seriously. And so the show was very light and easy and fun. And it was only two hours. So you didn't have to repeat yourself a hundred times and the segments were different. So I enjoyed that. Because I, without naming names and stuff, I have a lot of respect for Mike Felger. He works really hard. Tony Maz does too. Those guys are prepared every day. They are doing pre-show meetings. The good thing or bad thing about Felger is that he doesn't mind resetting with the same thing. So if he comes on at 2 o'clock and says something for 10 minutes, he's going to say that exact same thing or mostly like it at 4 o'clock, knowing that the audience is different. I don't listen to sports talk radio anymore either. 
(laughs) uh, When I do listen to it, it's because a story has broken and I'm trying to understand what people are saying or thinking about and stuff like that. But on a daily basis, they don't bring new information and I don't find it entertaining. So um, I have been able to wean myself off of it. It's nice. Especially during the downtimes of our teams. It's just like they're out there busting their butt, doing the best they can. And I don't want to hear the callers coming in and calling names and stuff like that. It's not my style. It's just counterproductive. Yeah. yeah. That's why I never like critics for shows. I'm like, you didn't like the musical and you you really wrote that about those people. Those people put hundreds of hours in for that show. And in one night they're going to be done because you didn't you didn't have a good time. Right. It's right. like, yep. just uh, don't, yeah, I don't want to get started. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, moving on. Ed had a fact that I didn't know about you, and I'm going to let Ed talk about that yeah. fact. As I was just reading your history, Bob, at one point, and I don't know if you're still pursuing this, you were looking to become a PGA professional. Yes. It's on my mind again, as a matter of fact. And what I want to be is an assistant golf pro. That's right. the highest level I could attain with my age and abilities and funding even. I, you know, it's not like I'm going back to school to become one. But there is a path. And um, I tried it, I don't know if it was four or five years ago. You have to pass a player ability test. Mm-hmm. And they give you a number. It's going to be like 156. So you got to shoot a couple of 78s the same day, same course, 36 holes. I went out somewhere in Western Mass and I shot 79 and then I shot 83. And I was like, ah, so I didn't pass. But I went in and I said to them, did I do something today that sets me up for the next step? And the guy said, yes, because both of your scores were within five of the number, the number being 78. You can go online and start taking the courses. And I said, great. So as soon as I get online to take the courses, one of the first lines is, um, you must have a full-time job in golf to continue. So I actually sent an email to somebody at the PGA or Massachusetts uh, MGA, said, you know, I'm a sportscaster and I cover the Deutsche Bank and I um, do golf highlights regularly. And he said, that's not enough. So I can't really pursue the job being an assistant golf pro until I retire from television. And the downside to that is by the time I do that, I don't know that I can shoot a 78. Right. Um, I do have the advantage of playing from the whites, white tee markers, Mm -hmm. and that does help me uh, because I don't hit the ball as far anymore. I signed up to do the first tee, if you guys ever heard of that. It's a great organization introducing golf to young kids, which is all I really want to do. I want to teach kids how to play golf. I don't think the professionals do enough to grow the game. I see lots of clinics where there's 20 kids and four instructors and the kids are anywhere from like eight to 16 years old, different ability levels, different interests. And they do it for a week and they get their boxed lunches and we never see those kids again. Whereas, I'm sorry to rant here, but my daughter took piano lessons for, I don't know, was it three years? Once a week for 25 bucks. I wish that golf professionals would do the same thing with kids to teach them golf. Instead of charging $60 an hour or having these little clinics, I think there'd be more parents who would let a kid show up for a 40-minute lesson for 25 bucks every week, two weeks, however much money they have, and the kid would learn to like golf. I do believe golf is a great game for teaching sportsmanship and rules. I wrote a column for ESPN.com 20 years ago more 
what would a golfer do instead of what would Jesus do? Because when a baseball player dives for a line drive and he knows he short hopped it, what does he do? He holds it up for the umpire to show, I caught it, I caught it, he's out. And everybody thinks that's great. That's, you know, if you get away with it, terrific and stuff. A golfer would never do that. They call penalties on themselves. Ian Woosnam famously did it uh, at the British Open where he had 15 clubs in his bag. And so that's a two-stroke penalty. He noticed it on the second hole. He could have like never told anybody and never, Brad Faxon called it on himself. I remember I was playing a match once and I hit a terrible shot off a par three and I went to where it landed in the rough and I see the ball and I hit it up to the green and I go to the green. It's not my ball. Nobody else knows it's not my ball, but I do. And so I say, I'm out of the hole, guys. I I hit the wrong ball. One of the guys I was playing with was surprised I said anything, which makes me wonder about what he would have done. (laughs) (laughs) So not every golfer follows these rules the way I I think they should. You must have been playing with Judge Smales. (laughs) (laughs) Winter rules. (laughs) Quit the game. So I like golf, and I loved when I was coaching the baseball and soccer teams for my boys. I helped out with the high school tennis team um, as well. Just offering encouragement and a, a tip here and a tip there. And so I wouldn't mind doing that in my later years as a second act, but I yep. don't know if I'm going to get there other than the volunteer work I would do with the first team. Right. Do you well, like in the meantime, the- you come oh. play with us. Okay. Yes. <laughs> if you're that good, we should win one year. I'm telling you. Yeah. <laughs> one year we get to win something. <laughs> well, now I am bragging, but I don't care. I played in the charity tournament on Wednesday, 150 golfers. I was closest to the pin on two holes. Wow. Yeah. And our team came in second. I was trying to help out a charity, but I ended up uh, winning 300 bucks in the pro shop. So good for me. <laughs> well, good. You, you, you'll get some good stuff at our place. You're, you're right. playing with Ed and I, so you, we'll, we, we can vouch. Terrific. We're always, we're always honest. We stink. So <laughs> <laughs> I loved watching Tiger play. I loved watching him as a kid all the way up through the last time he won, but he dominated that sport. Do yep. you like it now that he it's past Tiger's time? where every week it's somebody new or do you like being able to, you know, a lot of people didn't like tiger or a lot of people don't like Phil. So they root against those guys because they're always in the top three. Now it's like, who, I don't, who is that kid? I don't know who he is. Yeah. Um, but do you like it like this where it's somebody different and fresh new every week? Or did you like the tiger versus Mickelson sort of a uh, sort of yeah, aspect like, of the I, game? I like history. So when I'm reading up on this U.S. Open is about to happen and you go back through it and you see who won it and by how many strokes, I'm interested in that. I didn't enjoy being in the moment with Tiger because he ruined so many golf tournaments by winning by so many strokes. <laughs> so there was no drama. That's the beauty of golf. People say, oh, golf is so boring. And I'm going, no, it's not. Because A, as, uh, as a television sport, they're constantly showing another person, another person, another person. So there's a lot less downtime than there is even in football. If I can just throw in that little fun fact, that in a typical uh, NFL game, there's about nine minutes of action. Everything right. else is waiting, you know, you're huddling up and stuff. But every play takes like, you know, six seconds or eight seconds or something like that. Whereas in golf, it's constantly happening. And then if you have a tight leaderboard where three guys are within two strokes of each other with four holes to play, and that guy hits it into the rough and that guy hits it close. And that's like, so that's the, the, the drama of the event and who's going to win. And there were a whole bunch of times when Tiger would just win by six or eight strokes or something like that. And I, eh, whatever. But when I look back on that now, I go, wow, 
he was phenomenal. <laughs> so yeah, um, right like, to be able to do that. He was the the first of the greatest. Um, like Jack Nicholas with the wins and the whole bit. You're the greatest. But in terms of the ability and the technology and the equipment and the lengthening of golf courses and things like that, now there's like 30 guys who can play that well. And the good thing about that is this week it might be Bryson DeChambeau's turn again because he won the Open last year. Next week it's Dustin Johnson. Whatever happened to Jordan Spieth or Ricky Fowler, um, some of these guys who were like near the top of the leaderboards and uh, winning tournaments and uh, on pace to win this many majors and all that kind of stuff. And then they sort of just like fell off a little bit. So the fact that Tiger could maintain that level for as long as he did, that Mickelson won the PGA at the age of 50, it is remarkable. So I, I, I like the whole game and I root for Lots of different players, um, Jordan Spieth being maybe my favorite. I'll watch the Open this weekend. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I was lucky enough to get to go to Wingfoot when Tiger was at the top of his game. And we got to go to one of the practice rounds during the week, mm-hmm. which I found. And then we went to see part of the match. But I love the practice round. Yeah, We followed him for a little while. Then we went and did some other walked some other people. Freddie Couples was still playing at that time. And he got to a green and he must have laid down 25 balls in different angles of that green and just stood there in with his caddy and his other person and studied every crevice of that green. And it was just like, it was, and then the other guys would come along and they do something similar, but he took so much more time just studying the green part. He'd hit the, you know, he hit a drive and then walk, but he'd spent all his time at the green. It was just, it was just incredible to watch him. And he would actually talk to us, which was really cool, too. It was like they would talk to us during that time. And mm-hmm. he'd be like, yeah, we're going to look at the right angle, left angle. We're looking at blades of grass if they go left and right. And yeah. I just I found it fascinating. But the most scared moment I was when during the tournament, we stood John Daly was teeing off the fairway from the box of the fairway. is just lined with us. And I'm like, if I'm teeing off, I'm going to kill one of us because right. I go right, left. I don't go center. And his ball must have gone a thousand miles. Talk about launch angles yep. <laughs> and velocity. <laughs> uh, I was like, if he hits it at me, I'm going to die. It was just, it was just a f- so funny being there and watching a professional play and being out there with your buddies and playing. Mm-hmm. Like everybody has to stand behind me if I'm driving the ball because <laughs> you never know where it's going. And it's effortless. They just swing. I, we did play once before, Bob, and I remember you saying, you know, you don't have to like kill the ball, just meet the ball because right. you're trying to help us. And it's so true. And I watch those guys, their swings. Some of the guys now swing out of their shoes, but like the older golfers, like Couples and Daly and those guys, they they just took effortless swings and the ball just boom gone yeah, if, and I was like, if you ever like wanted to mimic a swing fred couples would be a good one yeah uh, to do i think i can almost give you a perfect segue if you're ready for it the best professional tournament i ever went to uh was the british open coming up on five years ago and my wife says it's the happiest she's ever seen me i was like running down the cart paths and the fairways um where you could run to get to see jordan spieth because i knew he was on the seventh hole and then i was able to cut across and see dustin johnson wow did he hit it and then mickelson was shooting 63 that day so i chased and got him on around 15 and followed him in and the whole bit and we had gone to wimbledon first and then we went to the british open which was in scotland that year and we always called it the bucket list trip because mm. that's what we wanted to do. As soon as I got back from this bucket list trip, um, I had my brain aneurysm rupture. And um, mm. so it was sort of like I almost kicked the bucket right after it happened. 
any other trip we, we have is not going to be called a bucket list trip. It's going to be uh, just before we win the lottery trip or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember, I remember that happened. It was, it was a very scary time. And um, I know you've talked a lot about it after you got out of the hospital and uh, talked about it in uh, some on channel five and other places, but I know you're also doing a lot of work for the brain aneurysm foundation. Um, and that's one of the reasons we did want to bring you on to talk about that work. So give us a little bit of information about who they are and how people can help and find them. Well, they were, um, definitely kind of adopted me when this happened and just asked me to help if I could. I have a little bit of name recognition um, where I could kind of help and I do things with the posts. But the Brain Aneurysm Foundation was founded here. It's local. BAF.org is uh, where people can find out about it and donate. You can follow me on Twitter at BobWCVB, and I repost lots of different things for them, playing Tom Tinlin's golf tournament, which raises money for the foundation. I took a, uh, what did they call it, a community service day this year. It was added to Channel 5's list of days off, you know, how many vacation days and sick days, whatever, at a community service day. And so we uh, lobbied the legislator, Stephen Lynch and um, Elizabeth Warren, to help continue research for brain aneurysm and things like that. So it's one of those things, like if I can give numbers, it's uh, one in 50 people, one in 50 people has an aneurysm right now. They don't all rupture, but you're living with one. And when they rupture, about 50% of the people who suffer that die pretty much within 24 hours or right on the spot. Another 25% die within 30 days. And of the 25% who survive, the consequences that they live with for the rest of their lives, they might be in wheelchairs, they might have speech impediments, they might have balance issues, they might have continued headaches. That hits most of many of them, I'll say. And I am extremely fortunate that I, I really don't have any uh, side effects from my brain aneurysm. For the, It's been almost five years. And for the first couple of years, I would kind of joke that I'm like a dog with a bark collar because if I sneeze, I get a sharp pain in the back of my head where I have a shunt, which gets the brain fluid to get out of my head and go where it's supposed to go, secreting into my abdomen, etc. The shunt would shake a little bit. And so I would sneeze and then go out like that. But that's mostly gone now too. So I don't even really have that to worry about. But I will tell you, every time I uh, forget something, you know, sometimes you think, well, everybody loses their car keys or forgets where they parked or something like that. Sometimes I think I know that the reason I can't remember this thing right now is because of the aneurysm. So I definitely have some memory issues that eh, worry me, but for the most part, I'm doing well. <laughs> yeah. Cause I remember you saying you don't even remember, you don't remember anything. You woke up and that's all you remember. Yeah. I have so many little holes. Like I can remember I worked, I was doing a Patriots training camp that day and I called my boss and I said, you know, I can put the packages together for the five, the six, the seven, but I got to get out of here. I have a doctor's appointment at 3.30 or something like that. I've had a migraine for like six days. And he says, okay. So I, I did all my work in the satellite truck, did the packages and drove towards the hospital where my doctor's office is. And I crashed the car into some side bushes off the side of the road because I passed out. And when I oh. woke up, I have a little memory of the EMTs there and somebody handing me an ice cold bottle of water, which was very appreciated. But then I get to the uh, emergency room. And fortunately, the doctor there, Dr. Mahoney, 
thinks that it might be an aneurysm. So they test for that. I think it was a CAT scan. Turns out that's what it is. So they send me to Beth Israel, where Dr. Ogilvie is one of the best doctors in the world at this kind of stuff, operated on me. And another little joke was that um, they, my wife says, when we first got to the uh, Beth Israel, they said you didn't have time to get to the emergency room or the operating room. So they operated on you right then and there. And I said, well, did they give me something to, you know, knock me out? And she said, no, you just kept passing out on your own. It's <laughs> 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 like, oh, great. <laughs> I hope I didn't wake up in the middle of that. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> it's sad, actually, you know, that I don't remember things because I can't show appreciation the way I would want to. Um, my sister-in-law, Donna, came from Arizona to help me and uh, her sister, my wife, Eileen. I don't remember her in the hospital room. I don't. I, it wasn't until I came home, like 20-some-odd days later, that I went to, in to get the silverware, a spoon, and that it wasn't in that drawer. And it, that wasn't a memory lapse. We did leave, keep the silverware in this other drawer. So I looked up and I said, was Donna here? Because <laughs> Donna's the type of person who would rearrange the kitchen and make it better. Um, and she did. So it was more convenient and everything. But that's when it dawned on me that I had just been talking with Donna for 17 or 20 days. When I, the nurse who saved my life many times and my wife's life and sanity, when I saw her for the first time at a road race to raise money for the Brain Aneurysm Foundation, at which I beat my doctor and my nurse. Um, <laughs> So, um, but when I saw her, it jogged a little bit of a memory, but I don't remember any conversations, any interactions. I, I missed a lot of that stuff and it bothers me. My wife says that I was in so much pain that, you know, that's what happens. You end up blocking it out and stuff like right. that. So my boys, I said, did, did the boys come to, I have three kids, uh, three boys. I have four kids, my daughter, uh, the boys uh, who lived with their mom at the time. Did they come? Yeah, they came every day. I don't remember it. And it makes mm. me sad. I'm a generally happy person, but that does make me sad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there's a reason. I mean, like you like your wife said, you're probably in so much pain, your brain just like you gotta go to sleep for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And well I was I guess I was complaining a lot that I couldn't uh, golf, I couldn't exercise, I couldn't go outside. And so the nurse to kind of shut me up said, Let's go for a walk. And apparently we walked around the floor of the hospital uh, floor that I was on. And by the time we came back after one loop, I was dead to the world in a nice way. But uh, I fell asleep. I was too tired. I had no energy. That took a long time to get back. Mm. I remember when I did come home, I would do one loop in the neighborhood, which is about a half mile. And that was all I could do. And mm. then, you know, within two or three weeks, I'm now doing a light jog. And, and so rehab and recovery was in some ways, it was good. That's what I was trying to say without saying good. But um, I think it was good to be challenged and good to be appreciative. And, and the dog saying hello. So. <laughs> and good to have him back. Anywho, but uh, I'm very blessed to be where I'm at health-wise. And anything I can do for the Brain Aneurysm Foundation... <laughs> And Dr. Ogilvy and the rest of them, uh, that's what I do now. So they don't ask a lot of me, but they'll never hear the word no. We'll put their uh, contact information in the right. liner notes so people can click on it when they come to listen to us. Um, Thank you. We can't go without talking about our tournament coming up. Bob is going to be playing with mm -hmm. us. He will be our pro with Ed and I. Um, there you go. <laughs> and uh, one, of our, one of the nurses from MGH is going to play with us, Cassandra McIntyre. So she's going to be our, our guest mm -hmm. this year. 
Our normal uh, gentleman cannot join us. Um, he's actually got another tournament cool. he's going to. But anyway, so uh, so we each can pay Bob twenty five dollars an hour. Okay, he can be our golf pro. So you got three times twenty five times about five hours, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so you don't have to worry about being closest to the pin. One of the things, though, uh, when I play, it is not very difficult, but I try very hard not to offer any advice. I can see some things. I am a student of the game. I took lessons. I watch the shows that uh, give lessons. Uh, I understand the principles of a golf swing and I can see that you're not doing it. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't really want to be one of those guys who like is a know-it-all or, um, and also it almost never works. I mean, if you want to get better, you have to take some advice and get to a driving range. Exactly. 50 golf balls. When I say you should do this and now you, you get one shot at it. And if it doesn't go well, you think, Oh, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about or whatever. And if it goes great, um, you think, okay, it'll work the next time, but it's not, I'm in that process right now. (laughs) I'm trying to uh, improve the game and I have to, uh, just trust the process that I'm doing things right. Even though, I'm having some bad results here and there and stuff like that. So, well, we can't thank you. So enough I'm not for, giving you any advice unless you ask. We can't thank you enough for being our pro this time. <laughs> you'll have you'll have fun again. It's a beautiful course. We're at Four yeah. Oaks. It's Four Oaks, right, Ed? Four Oaks in a Drake. Yeah, it's Mass. Four it's Oaks and Drake. It. The clubhouse sits up on top of the hill, and you you can see into Boston from the clubhouse in the first tee. It really is a gorgeous facility. Yeah, it's great. And this year we get to have a. Uh, luncheon after last year we couldn't we just played and had to get out of there due to covid Mm -hmm. but this year we're gonna have a nice after after play dinner and uh some prizes we got some great raffle items Mm -hmm. patriot sent us a signed julian edelman jersey game jersey and the red sox Mm -hmm. sent us some stuff and the celtics a lot of fun stuff so we are looking for people to keep playing so vohgolf.com you want to meet bob he can tell you more stories or give you some uh, handicap uh, (laughs) handicap pointers out there only but after we're done playing because we want to win we've never we never won that's right right. it helps if uh, if you have a woman in the group who can play a little bit when they go up to the red tees yep a good drive (laughs) We're in good shape. That can, uh, <laughs> the percentages aren't very high. The, it seems strange that there aren't that many women playing golf in some of these tournaments, and there aren't that many lefties playing golf. And I would say that 70% of the time, I'm with either a woman or a left-hander. Really? <laughs> well, I don't, yeah. I don't think Sandra's going to be our ace in the hole, according to what she told me. But we'll see. My, actually, okay. my wife took up <laughs> golf because she got tired of being left back at the office while the guys were out playing. And with clients, so she had mm-hmm. she actually ended up playing, and she's fairly good. She got to play at Firestone, some of those places. So she volunteers on that day. She doesn't play. She rather help out <laughs> in other ways. But uh, that's one of the reasons she goes. The women in the office are getting left behind, and I wanted to play. So that's great. So she she we learned love that. But anyway, yeah. So don't don't think Cassandra's not a ringer, and she she won't mind me saying that. <laughs> Amazing nurse, <laughs> saves many lives, but. On the golf course, she's there to have fun. (laughs) Uh, As we all are. I've played in a couple of tournaments um, where the team that finishes in last place, they win a can of tennis balls. (laughs) That could be fun. Mm. (laughs) The the golden tennis ball. (laughs) Yeah. Try another game. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Well, Bob, thank you again very much. We are so very happy that you're doing better. I can't believe it's been five years. It seems like it was yesterday. Yeah, come on, July 28th is the big 10-year anniversary. 
Wow. <laughs> anniversary. I love that. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see you on the 22nd. So we'll almost be there on your anniversary. That's right. There you go. Yep, that's right. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Um, I had a great time. I hope uh, the listeners did. I hope you guys did. But I just, it was fun talking and laughing and being comfortable. And you know, yeah. it, was, it was easy. And we got to meet your pup. <laughs> yeah, right. <That's> right. <laughs> Try not to make her a star of the show. I could have, she's tiny. She's like 11 pounds. I could have picked her up and put her in front. But uh, <laughs> she's, because she's tiny, I guess they're, they're yappers. They're, they bark a little bit. Yeah, so. that's how, well, my dogs are like 17, 18 pounds. Mm-hmm. And that's how he greets everybody at the door so he barks yeah. like he's 50 pounds but he's a little tiny guy <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, all right well thank you bob all so right, much bob. for coming on you guys all at channel five have been great to us and um can't thank yeah. you enough and we look forward to seeing you and if you want to come and talk to bob mm-hmm. and meet bob again bohgolf.com we also have some shows that we're working on uh so that's vohboston.org we will see you next time. We'll hear you next time. It's a podcast. I always say see you next time, but it's a hear you next time. So thank well, you very provide much. provide a great visualization. Yes, yes. you